friends, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey where we talk with people from all across the globe, from all walks of life and all age groups about trying to find their trifecta of happiness, which is doing what they love, what they can be great at, and where they can make the greatest impact on the world that they want to make. And this week's episode is no different, where I welcome in Deborah Olatunji, who is a writer, an award-winning poet, an activist, a public speaker, and the author of Unleashing Your Innovative Genius, High School Redesigned. Deborah is a 17-year-old rising college freshman from Newcastle, Delaware, who is intensely passionate about being an igniter and catalytic force in the education system. I'm excited for y'all listening to this episode, thrilled that she was able to come on and share a lot of her perspective from a Generation Z side of things, and I think it might get everyone thinking a little bit differently about education and where we should go with things uh, going forward. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Without further ado, my chat today with Deborah Olatunji. Let's get it started. Deborah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Hello, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, I'm excited. Always good. I have a lot of next geners on the podcast, and uh, <laughs> you being a part of the, that great community, I thought to have you on um, for a few reasons. Um, one is, I'm just impressed at 17 years old, some of the stuff you're doing. Um, and I'm excited for you, hopefully, to maybe instill some confidence as well as some energy into other folks listening in um, that they can go out and kind of a, a achieve their own things at any age. Um, and I want to get into the book a little bit. But before we get into that, where did the passion come on your end at such an early age to, to get into like solving education issues and kind of helping the, the Gen Zers, if you will, um, think a little bit differently. Where did, where did that come from? I think it's good to preface that it definitely didn't just happen overnight. Yeah. It was definitely a gradual process. And I think the real beginning of it was my sophomore year. I was taking a class, um, biology. It didn't go as planned because the teacher, he really just focused on pop quizzes. We had pop quizzes every other class. So instead of being excited for that class, we were all filled with dread and there were different class periods that went at different times. And so he would try to trip us up in terms of who had the pop quiz, but it wasn't learning anymore. It was just a guessing game of whether or not we would have to wonder if our grades were going to plummet the next day or whether or not there was something that was worth spending our time over or just not at all. And so when I realized that for myself, that the class wasn't focused on me learning and my classmates were also filled with the same dread, I thought to myself, what does education mean? And you know, what does it look like for the next two years of my high school experience? Because this definitely isn't it. And um, a lot of my peers could agree that for the most part, this teacher was focused on getting the results on paper, but he didn't care about our critical thinking skills, our emotional intelligence, the things that we were really going to need to value in the next two years. And I saw that as a really big problem. And so I started asking myself deeper questions beyond what does education mean? And then ask, also asking other students so that I had a more holistic view of what education could mean to other people, how this definition could be different from one another and how we could work towards making that definition reality. Uh, besides making some potential assumptions and kind of understanding where the education system is, what have you learned with, with the deeper digging? Like, why, why, how did we get here in 2020? I think we've gotten here through negligence. I think the phrase that people kept telling me throughout the entire process when I was doing my research is that the change is just going to happen by itself. 
And I kept realizing as I was digging deeper and deeper and deeper and asking more questions that just making that assumption on the surface level is so much more detrimental than sitting there and doing nothing because you're assuming that change is happening when it's not. And so I think we've gotten here just from the sheer lack of ignorance um, in terms of what the problem is. And then there aren't real education activists working towards solving this problem. And so when I realized that I wasn't the only person who was interested in this problem, I wanted to make it known that people understood you know, the gravity of what we were trying to tackle and how we could work towards you know, creating an education system where students actually had a choice as opposed to people assuming that change was happening the whole time. And if I recall, fact check me on this, but I believe like the education system really started back within the last 100, 200 years, really from a factory standpoint, right? To be able to train workers for, for the industrial revolution and, exactly. and beyond. Exactly. That's how yeah. it was made 200 years ago. And we're still working with that kind of system. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what's intriguing. You know, I have an eight-year-old. Um, so I'm kind of seeing this in, in elementary school even and of how they're learning and how they're teaching. And, and it's kind of just I'm like, wait a minute, this is like how I was in, I'm 37 years old. I'm like, this is how I was when I was in high school. How has nothing <laughs> changed besides that, you know, they have wobbly chairs now and they have some yeah. whiteboards versus chalkboards. A lot of the stuff is very similar. Um, so it's just intriguing because one of the things you mentioned, and I had written down actually here in, in preparation is around memorization, right? Where we had to remember so many facts back in the day. And that's one thing I could see as a massive change is that, well, I don't need to necessarily know, you know, who was in a certain war back 200 years ago, because I, I can technically search for it. So mm -hmm. I can use that time and my ability a little bit more wisely. Would you agree? I would definitely agree. Yeah. I think uh, that people are realizing that it's not really an education if you can just Google it. You know, we want skills, values, and virtues that you can't replicate anywhere else. And that's not what we're getting in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, my thought is around it, um, and I'm curious, especially with the, with the, obviously putting the time with the book, is that what's what I found is missing. I'm curious. I'm, I'll, this will be a fun conversation. I'm curious if this is stuff in your book and, and stuff you've you've researched. I, I bet it has to be. The two biggest things I've thought about is we're lacking in mentorship in in school, and we're lacking in skill development, and not just skill development around you know subjects, but also around like teaching kids credit, you know, how to, what are credit cards and, and financial debt and stuff about, you know, mortgages of how, like things that I didn't know getting out of high school. And I got into a lot of debt early on in my twenties and I didn't realize it was a problem because you never were taught it. You know, are you finding that as well? Like those are some things missing or, or are there anything that you'd add to that of where the big pieces of the puzzle that are missing? Most definitely. Personal finance is always a popular one when I ask people, you know, what do you wish you were actually learning in your classroom? Because we learn all about money. We learn about the rat race that we're trying to get through. You know, you want to be married by a certain age, have a career that's going to set you up for retirement. But we never talk about managing the finances. And a lot of kids do have jobs in high school. And so we get introduced to money early on, but we never learn how to really manage it. And also, like you said, skills building, no one ever teaches that either. I see skills as public speaking, you know, learning how to be a good storyteller, learning how to be a good mentor to someone, learning how to advocate for yourself, write pitches, you know, use the internet to your advantage. Those are all things that we're not being taught when we're in the digital age of education and people aren't tapping, it, tapping into how to use technology to fit the students who are sitting right in front of you who need that resource in order to be successful in the future. 
Yeah. Well, and the majority of people, whatever they go into their quote unquote career, like they go to college for, most people change careers. Mm-hmm. So it's almost not a waste, but like the skills as we're talking about that you're, you're supposed to be learning for that career. Now, all of a sudden they may not even transfer over. Um, how do we, so how do we fix it? What's the, what are some of the keys do you think to, to fix this thing? One of the biggest tools I would definitely say for educators, parents who may be frustrated with the way that the education system is going right now is simply asking students what they want. I know it's a very simple ask, but it goes a really long way when you tell a student, you know, I am invested in you pursuing what you're interested in. Even if you don't know exactly what that is, I want to be there for you as you explore, you know, what ideas really spark you, what wakes you up in the morning, and just allow them to go through that process of self-discovery as opposed to giving them all of the things and saying, all right, here you go. You have to learn this by 18. If you don't learn it, you're going to be a failure and that sucks. You don't want to be that. It's just you don't want to continue to shove these, these harmful narratives to kids that there's only one path. Because at the end of the day, you know, students want to explore what they're interested in and they're going to do it regardless. But if we can allow students to do that early on, we won't just be saving themselves, but also we'll be saving our economy because we'll have citizens who are actually passionate about what they're pursuing. And they'll be focusing so much more on contributing to their communities because their community contributed to them and really said to them, I focus, I want to focus on what you're interested in. I want to focus on your development and I want to see, you know, just how far your self-discovery can go. Yeah. And when you're, when you're happy in terms of the job you're in or career, you feel like you're fulfilled there. I think that trickles down to everything else. You're nicer to other people. Maybe you're, you, actually or have more energy to go out and, and fitness and health. And all of a sudden, we I think a lot of problems can be solved by just simply getting people on the right track versus almost feeling like, well, I have to just take a job just to take one, you know, mm-hmm. and then they get kind of down that path. Um, at least that's what I've seen um, with, with folks. Exactly. It's the same idea with telling kids that they have to go to college. I'm a strong believer that not everyone needs to go to college. And when I tell people that, they think it's this big controversial idea, but why would you force someone to go into debt and study things that they're not really interested in when they could maybe take that year off and really discover what sparks them and save all that time and money you know, becoming the person that they need to become in order to maybe go to the college in the future, or maybe not, you know, everyone has their own path. And I don't think that we should continue living in this monolith that everyone should just do the same things. You know, like I said, the rat race, everyone has a different path and we should focus on that instead. Um, I want to go back, if I can, just a little bit in terms of kind of your mission here, because there's a lot of kids probably sitting in early high school and thinking, God, this sucks. Like, I don't want to sit in this class. Like, this is not good. We need to do it better. But they don't do anything about it. What is it about you that like, was it a support system growing up? Was it like, how did you realize like, this is my, I'm taking the, you know, kind of bull by the horns, if you will, and I'm going forward with it. I would definitely attribute my independence towards and my approach towards wanting to change my education experience to my mother because I'm one of five siblings. Um, she inspired in all of us that if something doesn't exist, you know, you have to create it for yourself. And that was just a virtue that I always saw. You know, if there was a, a problem that I wanted to solve, I would get the materials. If I don't have the materials or the resources, I would ask the people in my circle. If there are people in my circle, I would want to expand my network to find those people, but always be in this constant state of problem solving. So I never see myself as someone who's stuck. You know, and I think that by having my mother tell me that every single day, by having the motivation, and I even have a chapter in the book about the importance of parents in your education and how they play a really, really key role in your development, having her as someone who just continually pushed me to 
pursue these things and to be a problem solver definitely contributed to the way I see education and the way I think that we can really redesign it for the students of the classroom, like your son, my kids, you know, all the kids who are to come to make sure that they have the best education experience possible. What, did you have a lot of fear and anxiety kind of going on this path? Did or, or were you just so because you seem very confident at 17, <laughs> I have to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, was there a lot of self doubt at all? Or, or did you not feel that at all? There was definitely self doubt. And I think that regardless of what your age is, or what project you're pursuing, there's always going to be that fear of what if something goes wrong. But from the very beginning, I think having had the failures in the classroom, I started to warm up to the idea that failures are supposed to happen because you know they're proof that you're continuing to push against the norm. You're continuing to put yourself in a position where you're uncomfortable. And so if you're not failing, maybe you're too comfortable. Maybe you're in too much of a safe space. And so I definitely was so afraid of the idea in the beginning. I didn't know all the exact processes. You know, I didn't think as a 10th grader that I would have written a book or published one. That was never a thought that came across my mind, but I was committed to the process of seeing what was next and having that kind of attitude and behavior of what can I do next? How can I continue to work towards solving this problem? And I know there are obstacles that are coming, but how can I continue to add them and the lessons that I'll learn from them to my life and my development? Yeah. One of the, things I have to imagine is, I mean, I know it's challenging for adults as old as I am, but definitely for younger generation and, and especially the Instagram world we live in is kind of comparison, seeing, okay, are you're doing this, someone else is doing that. How do you deal with um, people like saying, what do you, what do you think you can write a book at, in 10th grade? Or you, I'm sure there's judgment, right? Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that? How is it? How have you? Because you seem like you have a very positive mindset. Is that something you've developed over time? Have you always had that? So one of the things that has been a really good tool for me is having an identical twin sister. So I've always been compared, probably every single second of my life. And so having that exposure of someone thinking, "Why aren't you doing this?" or "That's not going to work out." I'm not saying that's my what my twin sister did, but that's how people would see us. You know, they would see something that I'm working towards, and they'd be like, "Well, why isn't your twin sister writing a book?" Or see something that she's working toward and saying, well, why don't you in this position and so forth. And so having the experience of being a twin and also living in such a big household has always put me in front of what is comparison and how do I deal with it. And I actually have like this note to self that I have taped up on my wall that is don't compare yourself, don't measure your progress using someone else's ruler. Because at the end of the day, you know, some people are measuring in feet, some people are measuring in miles, some people are measuring in inches, but you waste your time and you stifle your progress when you focus on what measurement their progress and go is going towards. And so it's something that I always have to remind myself. It isn't something that I just wake up every morning and commit to memory, but I always remind myself when I'm in those moments of comparison, you know, that person is in an entirely different journey and they're going towards an entirely different goal. So why would you compare yourself in that way? Well, I want to talk about the book a little bit if we can. Um, how do you publish a book when you're in 10th grade? <laughs> well, actually, I started writing it as a junior. So in okay. October of 2018, that was my junior year, I reached out to Eric Custer of the Creator Institute. You may know a couple of other authors that have mm-hmm. gone through his program, like my older sister, Miracle. Um, I'm trying to think of some other new degree press authors. Haley Hoffman Smith. Haley Hoffman Smith, yep. yes. <laughs> um, the author of Stop Getting in Your Own Way. Her, her name is escaping my name right now, but she's another incredible person who has gone through the program. And so I had my older sister as someone who was motivating me because she went through it before me. She actually just celebrated, I think, one year of her book being published this past June. And so I reached out to Eric, you know, he said, 
it was actually in June when I reached out to him. He said, we're not doing the high school program right now. And then he reached out to me in October. And that was when the process really started going. And then I actually started writing words in January of 2019. And there were so many moments in the book writing process where I was thinking to myself, do I even need to write a book? You know, like you said, I'm only 17. Well, not even 17 at that time. I was 15 at that time going on 16. I thought to myself, do I need to do this? You know, I constantly had those moments of self-doubt, but then I remembered who I was writing the book for. And I remembered all those frustrated students who were bored in their classrooms, who didn't feel like the education system was even listening to them or that their teachers were listening to them. And that was ultimately my biggest motivation. And then in April of 2019, I completely revamped what my book was about because I felt like it sounded like a textbook and it wasn't authentic to me and my message. And so there was a lot of flexibility and pivoting that went towards the book writing process. And honestly, if someone wanted to start, if they're listening and they want to start writing a book, I would say just start writing your thoughts down on paper and then think of that why. You know, why are you writing this book? Who is the audience? What books currently exist on that topic? And why are you the person who needs to develop this message? I think that's a question that Eric always asked me and it always tripped me out because no one ever asked me. He was like, why do you need to write this book? You know, why can't someone else write it? Why are you the person who needs to talk about these issues in education? And that was a question that I constantly asked myself through the process. Were you sitting down and, you know, you'd sit down for like seven straight days and just kind of write profusely, <laughs> if that's the right word, my vocabulary is not great, but, uh, or would you like, you know, kind of just pick and choose here and there, write a few, how, how did you go about actually writing? So it definitely wasn't a smooth process. I didn't write all of one chapter in one day or all of one part in one day. And my book is broken up into three different parts. But the way that I did it was I tried to get an accountability partner at some points so that didn't work. I tried to set a schedule for myself like I would write for two hours and then take a break that didn't work. But the moments that it actually started clicking for me was when I started listening to music and I set up this it was kind of like a trap for myself because I hate hearing songs over and over and over again, but I wouldn't let myself move on to the next song until I'd written something. And th those were the moments when it was extremely hard to write, where I didn't have the motivation. And I thought to myself, you can't just wait for the motivation to hit you. You know, you have these deadlines that you have to meet. You have these editors that you have to have meetings with to talk about your progress and, you know, how the book is progressing. And so I created my own versions of motivation to make sure that I got to the deadlines. And then my, my publisher was extremely flexible. If I couldn't meet a deadline, they would understand and I just kept that thought in my mind that all these people are on my team no one's against me and that kind of idea kept me moving forward mm -hmm. what um what was the promotion process look like you know that's always especially if you don't have a base right you not many people probably knew who you were at that time so how did you go about actually promoting the book getting it out to the, the right people that would want to read it so in the beginning stages, we had a pre-sale process, and that's kind of where the publisher determines whether or not your book is going to look good in the market or whether or not people are actually going to buy it. And so from the very beginning, they set, up, set us up in the mindset that you have to promote yourself in order for people to understand that your book exists because... Like you said, it's not like I was incredibly popular by the time I'd written the book and had all these people, you know, backing me. I had to find that support. And so luckily enough, I learned how to leverage my LinkedIn um, networks and, you know, how to get the emails from there, how to have conversations that go beyond, hey, can you buy this book right now, right now? Can you please pre-sale? Like, I had to build those relationships with people. And having learned that really helped me in the pre-order stage because I ended up meeting the goal, I think, sometime in December. And then I also started my tour early. And how that happened was I got a local newspaper to write an article about how I was writing this book, how I was going through this pre-sale so I could get press around the idea and get new people to hear that I was doing this thing. And somebody from Philadelphia actually read the article, 
gave it to their spouse and that spouse worked for a school called Pencrest High School. And then she was, she was speaking with her principal and she said, I want this um, young student to come and talk to my classmates, to my students. I think she would be a really great source of motivation. And then the principal was like, no, I want her to talk to the entire school. So that was another really big part of the promotion process, just getting that article. And then I think it was really a matter of God's timing that the person read the article and gave it to their spouse. But from that article, I was able to reach a lot more people and the audience just kept expanding from there. Did you just reach out to the local newspaper or did how, how did they find out? <laughs> so technically media was the newspaper that I reached out to and I'd done press with them before. And my sister was, uh, she got chosen to be a staff writer for some time. And so I had connections with technically media. I'd written with them before. And so mm -hmm. that part wasn't too difficult, but ultimately the writer, the lead writer there, um, Holly Quinn, she was extremely um, understanding, extremely nice and supportive. And so I just reached out to her and she was like, yes, of course, we'll write this one. How was it getting in front of a whole school where a lot of those folks are maybe older than you? It was definitely nerve wracking, but I try to think about it from their perspective. You know, what would I think if there was a 17 year old who was in my position standing in front of me? And so I try to make my message as relatable and authentic as possible, because I think that that's, those are key things that we love as Gen Z. We don't want someone who's just going to stand in front of us and say, you know, I'm the best thing ever. I'm a hot shot and all that. So I really try to make sure that the presentation was tailored to things they were going through in their school. And then I, even in the presentation, I made a reference to the resources that they have. For example, they had posters around that I sent to the administrator who ended up making the connection with the principal. And I said to them, you know, if you're an activist, for example, if you really care about a cause, you have this entire print shop that you don't even have to worry about paying for that your school provides you with. That is an incredible tool that you can use to amplify your message, to get your voice heard, and then to get people to come to whatever you were talking about. And so I kept making these analogies and making these these things that were in their school known to them, like as someone who's an outsider looking in, you have so many resources at your disposal. And if you don't, there are ways that you can find them. Is the, is the book for like high school students? Is it for the teachers, the parents, what, what, all of the above? What, what are you finding? So the audience demographics have been very, very interesting. For the most part, it is, like I said, a high school student written book to high school students, but there have also been tons of teachers who have read the book and they say, you know, I really resonated with this and I understand that there are ways that I can make my classroom experience better, but this book gave me so much more clarity on how I can do so. And then college students have also been reading the book. They say to me, you know, I wish my high school experience was like the one that you described in your book. I wish I had this book three years earlier. And so the audience has really been high school students, college students, parents, teachers, and then people who just genuinely care about the future of education. I think with the pandemic, a lot more people have been putting their eyes on it and realizing kind of the exposed problem that is going on. You know, you can't just move a classroom online and have the same ideas and same virtues. And so the people who really are focused on the future of education, those are usually the people who buy and read my book. Well, that's actually a good transition because I was going to ask about that, you know, over the last couple, and I know this again with my, my second grader, where you know he went to virtual school basically so like the work he was doing i mean it was i don't know probably took him let's say two hours a day let's on average right so what's the full day of school the necessity for that you know like that was one of the things that i brought i was thinking about i was like is, is that even necessary now i know the social aspect of it i get mm -hmm. but in terms of the learning there's a lot of things like i would have him do like watching you know, YouTube videos, like science videos, or Netflix has like great documentaries, like other stuff that's really, I think is probably knowledgeable, um, or important, not the traditional memorization. So how has the pandemic um, 
open the, when you talk about open the eyes, like what are some of the, the initiatives that you think have worked well? What are some things that, again, maybe not, not so much, I guess. I think that one of the things that is really working well is teachers and administrators are finally asking what works for my students and being extremely intentional about making sure that they're not on the screen for too long, that they're not sitting down for too long, that they're actually engaged, especially for the younger kids. And then they're asking students, like I said, what do you want to learn? What are you actually interested in? How can we fill these two to three hours during the day with information that you're actually going to be excited to come back and learn? And how can we continue to make this school day something that is actually interesting to you? One of the downsides on the other side has been, like you said, the social side. I think so much of school is focused on extracurricular activities and trying to find yourself through those than the actual curriculum and what we're learning. And teachers are realizing that, parents are realizing that, and they're saying, you know, my soccer team isn't going to come home with my child. How are they still going to learn the values of teamwork and collaboration and ideating with someone who isn't, who doesn't think the same way as you? And so there have been people who don't really like the online learning for those purposes. They think that it's boring and dull and, you know, doesn't really fit their needs. And that's okay. I think people are realizing how important it is to understand that there are so many different ways to learn. Maybe your student likes um, virtual learning. Maybe they would much rather prefer something that's in-person, project-based or performance-based like the people in Finland. I, I can get into that a little bit later, but people are realizing that there are so many way, more ways to learn and we actually have to tap into them in order for students to benefit. What were you saying about Finland? What was okay, so two months ago. <laughs> well, now you ago, got me curious. <laughs> two months ago, I'm pretty sure, um, Finland announced that they are getting rid of all of their school subjects. I got so excited, I almost cried because I thought to myself, this is probably the biggest form of education progress that we have made in like the past 10 years. And what they're doing is they're shifting towards something that is performance-based. And so that just means that students are actually going to get into their interest. And so basically everything that I wrote in my book coming to life. That's what's happening in Finland right now. And I was so incredibly excited about it that I pulled my Instagram followers. I said, what do you think about this article? Um, what are some flaws? What are some good things that you could see from it? And they, they, a lot of the consensus was, how can we just get rid of a system that we have known about for so long? And I think the approach that Finland is taking is, we want the students to create a system because the old system isn't working. We want them to be a part of the rebuilding process so that when students talk about school 10, 20, 25 years from now, they can say, I really truly was able to talk about what I was interested in. I was able to relate with my classmates in discussions that actually intrigued me. And I left school with so much good that I was able to fuel into my community and fuel into the world. Do you think it starts at the, you know, like the county level or state level? I mean, I can't imagine it'd be at the federal level, how, how big that change would be. Because I, I feel the challenge is, you know, you have a lot of folks that have been in the, we'll just call it the, the, the administrative side. Um, that are making a lot of these decisions. And a lot of times you just make the safe play, right? You don't want to ruffle feathers. Let's just make the safe play. It's worked for a lot of years. Let's just keep going forward. How, how, like how do we, you know, kind of ignite people to, um, I don't know if that's elect different individuals. I, I'm not even sure how you get like the, the Finland policies working um, in, in our local governments, our, our local school districts. Yeah, I think it definitely starts from a local level because we couldn't do it at a federal level. There would be too much pushback, too much opposition. And with the way our, our houses, the House of Representatives and the Senate is so divided right now, we couldn't, we couldn't even talk about education policy in such a tense environment. So it definitely starts with local areas and making sure that there are education activists that are so much more than just a national presence. Like I've been working with the Delaware State Board of Education and even my school specifically about creating curriculums that are race-based so that we include so many more stories about um, 
you know, our history and that it's actually the full picture instead of the whitewashed version that we've been getting for so many years. Mm -hmm. And so it definitely starts with people who are local activists who see the changes in the education system that need to be ha that need to happen. And then most of the effort that that is that I've seen in this whole entire process is when these activists have been in the school districts and they can actually talk about their experiences and parallel it to some of what the kids are going through right now. Um, how much do you get in the book? And, and if you do, I'm not sure. Maybe this is your next book. If not, <laughs> you know, you might be working on. But like, how do? What about uh, the actual teachers? The pay is just incredibly low, right? Mm -hmm. The the benefits, the, you know, the the fact that they have to buy their own supplies sometimes. I mean, it's ridiculous. So, how how much of that has come up in a lot of these conversations? Yeah, there's a chapter specifically focused on teachers because, like I said, they're kind of the backbone of our education system, even though the people who are making the actual laws never consider the teachers or the students. And so in the book, I talk about this too, how there needs to be so many more policies that encourage students to be, encourage teachers to be flexible and being able to have a receptive and safe space where students can have these different discussions about their ideas. Because if the teachers won't work in tandem with the students to create this environment, we're gonna just continue to have the pushback and continue to have the tension. And so there's also the piece of teacher diversity. You know, oftentimes we, I pulled this question with Eric Custer, how many teachers, if you look back in your yearbook, how many teachers were black indigenous people of color? How many teachers did you have in front of you who were just setting the precedent of who has the power, whose voice is important? So those are conversations that I continue to have with people as they read the book, you know, they talk to me and they look through their yearbook and they say, oh, wow, I only had one black teacher. I can't imagine, you know, what my experience would have been like being a black student if I had so many more. And so I think that it's a conversation of diversity. It's a conversation of flexibility. And it's also a conversation of addressing the teacher's needs because you're right, they don't get paid nearly as much as they should be getting for the amount of effort that they put into the development of the students that they say, you know, you're the future, you're the leaders, but you're not paying the people who are training us from day one to fully actualize our potential in the classroom and then in the community. Yeah. Well, this, well, this, I won't go down this tangent, but like I, I saw this recently. Um, I can't remember who was talking. I think it was Hassan Minaj maybe on, on his Netflix show. I can't remember, but like was talking about like a lot of colleges, right? Are, um, using graduate assistants um, to teach a lot of the classes way more than they mm -hmm. ever used to because it costs a lot less and the colleges can make more money. So it, almost similar, it's like you want the top trained individuals training the next generation, but that's not always happening. It's it's folks that maybe don't have as much experience. Not that they're not good, they just mm -hmm. maybe don't have as much experience, you know? Right. And I saw that episode. So I know okay. what you're talking about. Okay. Minaj. I was definitely intrigued by that because I'm going off to college. So that's my next stage. And a lot of people will ask me, you know, you wrote this book in high school, you graduated, is that it? It definitely isn't it. The problem continues to exist in higher education. And I think he did a really good job of exposing that issue with how they're just basically exploiting graduate assistants to work for a lot less money when they should be paid almost as much as a professor because they're filling in that space and providing the information, like you said, for the people who will become the next professors and the next doctors and the next teachers and lawyers and people who run the world. Um. How do you manage all of this from a day to day? You're a full time student. You have you know probably stuff with the books. Maybe you're speaking. I saw you're doing the student leadership program. You're on a board of a nonprofit. Like you got a lot of stuff going on. So are there certain habits you've developed from for a time management or prioritization that that you could share? Yes, I can definitely share a couple of my time management hacks, and they definitely change. Um, determining the system and like the season that I'm in because I'm also a varsity athlete. So I had to do what, with What's that. your sport? Track and field. I was oh. a sprinter. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
so a lot of the time management strategies, one of the first thing is assessing what needs to be done. And then of course, you know, creating this, the time and space to do so. One of the really affirming sentences that I say to myself because I have such a, a busy um, time schedule is I will make time for that. Not I don't have time for that or I can't make time for it because time is something that you should use to your own agency. And when you really take control of that, it just feels so much more empowering than saying, oh no, I can't do it because I just don't have the time. You do have the time, but you're not making the time for it. And so I can't say that I'm a perfect time management person. I'm always continuing to learn how I can make that process better. But one of the things that I used was a um, must need weight chart that I've created for myself. And so it was basically three different columns and I had all the things that had to be done that day. I wanted to limit it to four things because once I go to five, it's just kind of overwhelming. And so all the things that needed to be done, absolutely, it was a must. I had to do it before I went to sleep. It was in the must column and then the needs the needs was just stuff that I needed to get done and didn't have to be done today. It could be done a week from now, but they were things that were still really important that I needed to have on my radar. And then the weight column was just so if I had any other lingering task, it wouldn't just stay on my mind. It would be on a piece of paper so I could focus my time and my energy on the things in the must column and not have to worry about all the little things that I also had to do on the side. And so I did the must need weight method for most of my senior year because I had to deal with writing the book, you know, doing college admissions, like I said, running track and field, and then also working for the nonprofit and then running my own organization. And for the most part, it did work. And then I also had an accountability person who was my mentor, Rich Keller. I don't, you probably know him because he's a Rich Keller, oh yes. <laughs> so Rich Keller is my mentor. That's the magic right there. And he was also a really encouraging person in my process throughout my senior year. He's going to get a big head being mentioned on this on this podcast. I want to let him know. No, Rich is a phenomenal individual. I've been working with him a lot on some stuff. So um, he was back, uh, gosh, a while back he was on the podcast. So yeah, he's a cool dude. Um, what um, what are you excited about next? You mentioned college. What are what are some things on your plate that you're uh, you're excited about? So I'm going to the University of Pennsylvania in the fall, and I'm going to be majoring in nursing and um, public policy. I'm going to be minoring in that. And my excitement has been, I think from the very beginning, when I learned that I was accepted in December, it was a lot, but now with the pandemic, it's kind of getting smaller and smaller because we don't know the certainty of whether or not we're going to be on campus. And one of the biggest things that I'm looking forward to is pursuing activities that continue to put me out of my comfort zone, whether that's stand-up comedy, continuing to do more spoken word poetry, joining a dance group, or doing more theater activities, activities that really just get me moving and get me out of my comfort zone. Those are things that I was really, really excited about, but I don't even know if they're going to be, I don't know if we can have extracurricular activities in the same way in the future. And so I'm still excited to meet people because I'll be going to a school where living in a city that I've never lived in before. So that's still something that's very exciting, but you know, we still have to think about the safety concerns and the fact that there's still a pandemic going on. Now, when I hear public policy as a, as a minor, is that, are, is it, are you tipping the, the <laughs> scales in what it would be 20, 2038 maybe? <laughs> when you're, th yeah, you're 35 perhaps. and eligible to run? Uh, what do yeah, you hope I to get it? What are you, are you looking to get into maybe the, the public side of things and, and potentially you know, politics, stuff like that? Oh, most definitely. I think that it's important for me to have the experience with my constituents in the community as a nurse, which is why I'm pursuing that pathway, but I'm definitely so excited about policy. I've had a lot of people around me who inspire me, like my Lieutenant Governor, Lieutenant Governor Bethany Hall Long in Delaware. She was a nurse beforehand and now she's our governor. And 
Um, also in Illinois, um, Lauren Underwood, she's a representative, one of the youngest, I think she's the youngest black um, representative in the House of Representatives mm -hmm. ever. And so she was also a nurse beforehand and now she's a representative. So I've been inspired by so many incredible women that I see it as something that I could definitely do. And being president is definitely on my radar. So <laughs> who knows, 2038 or 2040? We could, we could use you. I wish they, they changed the age. The age <laughs> um, what, uh, I asked this, <laughs> well, this is different because you're 17, but I normally ask the question. So I'll ask it to you. You're, we're going to have to go a little younger of like, Hey, if you're talking to your 18 year old self, if you had to go back in time, well, we're not going back in time. We're right here. So if you had to go back though, someone that's, let's say in high school or, or uh, maybe late middle school, what have you, what advice would you give them to help them a little further along on their, on their path? And the caveat here, which makes it a little fun, is you only have a post-it note to write it on. So very quick and concise. What would you say to them uh, to help but How them big is this post-it note? Like, is it a tiny? Well, we can write small. What? Okay. Um, on a tiny post-it note, I would probably tell them that it's important to audit your circle with people who are interested in the same things as you. And then to never focus on the negative aspects of life. I, I'm not saying that you have to be a positive person all the time, but having negative people in your circle will affect the way that you think and the way that you approach life. So I think if I just had a tiny little sticky note, maybe just three words, I would say audit your circle because the people that you surround yourself with ultimately contribute to development of the person that you are and the person that you want to become. Have you always been around a great group? Is that why that you're giving that advice? Or have you had... Um other folks that you've had to kind of step away from um, as well? I think in every phase of my life, I've had people that I've had to step away from. And there've also been moments in my life where I'm just by myself and I'm kind of with my blinders on with just an independent mindset. And I don't think that that's beneficial either. And so I've had to navigate through both of those worlds, being by myself and being around negative people because it truly does affect your development. You have to learn when it's time to cut someone off or just say, I'll continue to be nice to you. I'll continue to be kind and say hi, but you can't have a part of my development. You can't be a part of the storyline that I'm continuing to share because you're just a negative part of it. And I don't need that energy, you know, in my circle. Absolutely. Well, that, yeah, that is definitely great advice. And I think for a lot of folks, they don't realize that until way later that the, the folks that they've spent around actually, they, they sucked in a lot of that negative energy and it made them make potentially poor decisions exactly. um, because of that. All right. So your book, Unleashing Your Innovative Genius, High School Redesigned. Where can everyone find it? You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Barnes & Noble. And you can also go to my website, www.deborahotucci.com. This has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you coming on the podcast, sharing your uh, journey a little bit, and uh, hope to stay in touch with you as you continue forward. Most definitely. But I hope you all enjoyed that interview and hope to have you on the next one. And if this is your first time stopping by the podcast, I'm grateful to have you and hope you picked up a lot of great tips and insights that will help you on your own journey. And if you think I deserve it, I would certainly appreciate a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You might even be listening to this on Apple Podcasts. You would just scroll to the bottom of my podcast, click the five-star rating, write a quick review. It should take you about 20 seconds and it allows this podcast to get out to more individuals, hopefully to get them started on their own journey. As always, if you all want to connect with me online, my website is brianondraco.com. And you can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at brianondraco. I hope to connect with you guys online soon. I hope you have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Mm -hmm.